All right, well, I guess we'll get started. Um, um, thanks for coming, just to make sure you're in the right place. I'm Brian Sandine, and this is uh, Staying Fresh in Ministry about working well with elders. Um, so if you thought you were in a different class, now's the time to escape. So uh, so Mike Cope asked uh, three of us, um, Mark Manassie, who's here with us today, Jimmy Adcox and me, to present some information designed to help us all stay fresh in ministry over the long haul. Uh, I get today, Jimmy will be here same time tomorrow, and then Mark on Friday. Uh, Jimmy will talk about preaching and teaching, Mark some about spiritual vitality, and so together we hope we can do a little something to help you stay fresh in ministry. Uh, when I first talked with Mike about this, he wanted me to talk about uh, staying well read, you know, beyond sermon and class preparation, reading other things uh, about ministry and people and culture and all of that. And, and I could have done that, but I thought two things. First, just off the top of my head, I could think of a handful of people who are a lot better at staying well read than me. Um, and then second, how exciting would that really be? Um, um, I, uh, uh, so I, I, I started to think, you know, what... Uh, um, what might people like to hear about? What might perhaps be more interesting? And maybe about getting along well with elders. Surely nothing could go wrong with that. But seriously, um, um, we'll, we'll see over the next, um, next few minutes how we go. So uh, just out of curiosity, uh, uh, ministers? Yeah, no, no elders? Oh, well, a couple of, also double, double duty. That's good. All right. Well, um, let me just get started by reading from Acts chapter 20, which describes Paul's farewell departure uh, um, from the elders, uh, the church in Ephesus with whom he had worked closely. Paul reviews his time with them, explains his plans to go to Jerusalem, and then gives them a charge to shepherd the church well. And what I want to read comes from verses 36 through 38, which says... Well, when he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And, and I hope that is what we all long for, a relationship between elders and their minister that uh, they weep together, embrace one another when their time of ministry comes to an end because it has been such a blessing for their lives. Um, you know, what a great way to serve together. Now, you have a handout, so uh, um, uh, if you look at it for a moment, you can see where we're headed. First, I, I want to mention two things we already know about um, ministers and elders. I want to describe a bit uh, of the tension that can exist between the two. It's a, a complex situation, and that's the whole reason this class is important. And then I'll cover 10 recommendations for fostering or maintaining a healthy relationship with your elders or your minister. Um, and then finally, maybe we'll have some, uh, some time for uh, conversation when we're done. So as we begin, we already know a couple of things about the elder-minister-elder relationship. First, we know that the relationship has the potential to be a real blessing in the lives of those involved, but it also has the potential to do a lot of damage. Uh, it can go well or not. Obviously, we want to uh, maximize the former, minimize the latter. And then second, we know that our experiences uh, in this relationship are different, sometimes very different than the experiences of our peers. 
I know from talking with other ministers that they've been through things that I have not. At the same time, I've seen things happen and had interactions that they have not. And so there's a lot of variety to our experiences. And because we know these things, because I know these things, at the same time I prepared my thoughts for this class, I reached out to some of my friends and colleagues for input that they might have, um, insight that they might offer, and I've taken those things into account as I've prepared for today. Incidentally, two of them simultaneously served as the preaching minister and the elder uh, in their church, and so pretty good help for me. My goal for this class is to talk about the elder-minister relationship, uh, to offer some advice in a way that's real and practical. I want to do my best to be frank and honest while at the same time being respectful and loving. Perhaps the trickiest part of the conversation comes when we talk about the potential tension in the minister-elder relationship. So, you know, what's that all about? Um, Maybe it's easiest to explain the Uh, the tension with two extreme illustrations, right? So from an elder's side, sometimes a minister has a strong personality and strong opinions. Uh, He has an education and a good understanding of Scripture, and so he thinks the church should go in a certain way. And if elders are not careful, the minister will just sort of take over and run the church. He'll even ignore elders' instructions and do what he wants to anyway. The minister may think the elders have little or nothing to teach him anyway, and so he grants them little authority to train or disciple him. He uses that strong personality to move deacons and other leaders in the directions that he wants them to go, and in time, the church takes on the character and the personality of that minister. To guard against that kind of situation, elders sometimes feel they must maintain a tight control over the minister and make his position as a hired employee pretty clear to him. Uh, The elders assert themselves as the ones in authority, and so the nature of the relationship as it exists this way is adversarial. If not overtly, then just below the surface. The elders see problems with the minister in a lot of the things that he does. The minister sees problems with the elders at every turn. There's no sense of teamwork or cooperative ministry. There's certainly no trust. Unhealthy conflict is is likely, if not inevitable. It's, It's just not a good thing. From the minister's side, sometimes elders will not let the minister in. Whether it comes from their understanding of the function of elders or from the approach to leadership that they brought with them into the eldership or simply their desire for control, they they, they keep the minister at arm's length. He doesn't participate in elders' meetings. He may be reduced to giving reports about his work and then receiving instructions on what to do and how to do it. Because of their approach to eldership, it's pretty clear to everyone Uh, that the elders run the church, and the elders find it hard to believe that their minister could train or disciple any of them toward being a better leader or a closer relationship uh, with Jesus. And so to counter this exclusion, the minister may try and find inclusion um, in the parts of the church where he can find it, right? Uh, Small groups, a, a Bible class, a ministry that he works closely with, The potential for divisions grow as some people ally themselves with the preacher and others with the elders. Uh, Again, there's no sense of teamwork or cooperative ministry or trust. An unhealthy conflict is likely, if not inevitable, and yet, again, it's it's not a good thing. Now, like I said, these are 
admittedly simplified and rather extreme characterizations. We know that not every elder in an eldership acts the same way. We know that not all ministers are alike, um, but I only have a few minutes. And, and if you've spent any time in churches, uh, you should be able to see glimpses of truth in these descriptions. Perhaps um, uh, preachers or elders you have known may come to your mind. They, they kind of do for me. Um, and so th there can be this potential tension um, in, in the relationship. Now, um, as we move on, I, I want to mention something that has complicated this tension, and that's the way that the church has changed over the last 50 years. Ministry and church life has become much, much more complex. The first kind of complexity we might call organizational complexity. The church as an organization is just not as simple as it used to be. In the past, ministers were primarily responsible for preaching and teaching, managing a little church business, evangelism, and some pastoral care. The elders were tasked with making decisions about church direction, paying bills, overseeing deacons and ministers, handling complaints. It was a time when church records could be kept in a handwritten ledger. Technology was pretty easy and understandable, um, and even large congregations had simple mission and organization, and the legal requirements for being a church were few. It was also a time, as a church of Christ, a congregation had a pretty clear identity. We knew what made us distinct, and we could share that pretty convincingly. We could also count on other congregations to be pretty similar to us. We understood ourselves and, and how we fit in with others. But today, things are much different. The job of the minister has simultaneously grown and become more specialized. While we're talking primarily with preaching ministers in today's class, we also know youth, worship, involvement, education, administration ministers, um, and more. Ministers not only preach and teach, but they coordinate uh, with other ministers and sometimes supervise them. It's their job to chart the church's mission and cast a vision for getting there. Uh, they need to organize efforts and coordinate ministries in line with that mission. There's a, a church culture to manage. Uh, they need to understand spiritual formation and discipleship along with pastoral care. There are now small groups to coordinate a, and worship to plan, if not a worship ministry to work with. Uh, there are community service events and community coordination to oversee. Leadership is key. There's also a lot more technology to understand and use. If not, you get left behind. The minister must know uh, the budget and sometimes fundraise. There are internal church publications and outside advertising. The minister now performs all kinds of functions, many for which he was not trained, and does this in conjunction with his elders. And for elders, there are all of the decisions to make that come with oversight. And there is shepherding, the attention that must be given to the spiritual life and the well-being of the flock. And what did Lynn Anderson say about shepherds, right? They, they smell like sheep. And so elders need to be um, familiar with, uh, with their people. They also need to be familiar with church bylaws and articles of incorporation and perhaps modify them when needed. There is this whole human relations part of taking care of employees, not just salary, but ever-changing health care pictures and how all of that impacts the budget. 
There are issues that border on legal concerns like insurance and property taxes and dealing with county and state government regulations uh, where it used to be that cities saw churches as their friends and partners in civic life. Now they'd kind of like to replace our tax-exempt buildings with revenue-generating big box stores and the um, restrictions on churches are growing. And churches of Christ are not as uniform as we used to be. Our identity has been in flux and issues that were once settled are not. And so elders and ministers get to wrestle with worship styles and women's participation and more. Um, many times all of this on top of an elder's full-time job. Now, th these kinds of changes have to do with organizational complexity, but a second kind of complexity we might call cultural complexity. Uh, we just don't live in the same world that we used to. Uh, in the most basic sense, we used to live in a country and a culture where Christianity was entwined in most everything. Um, and uh, we were insiders with all of the benefits of being accepted. While there has been change in the past, it was generally slow and incremental, and so we experienced a lot of stability. We ministered to people who came seeking help, and we trained people who volunteered uh, and were willing to participate. And as you well know, most of all this is no longer so. The world is changing rapidly, and so the church is experiencing change in an unprecedented scale. Changes in technology, media, science, ethics, philosophy, and religion all mean that as Christian leaders, uh, we were prepared for a world that is disappearing. Our congregations are shrinking um, at a surprising rate, and it's difficult to reach people who belong to a culture that, uh, that thinks of churches as um, an irrelevant relic of the past. What's really challenging about all of this is that the training we once received and the methods that we employed are now out of date. But because that's what we know, we keep trying them, hoping that maybe this time it'll work. Uh, it, it's hard. Uh, in churches, we have always faced two kinds of problems. Technical problems are the ones where the solutions are available to us. Um, if we don't have the knowledge or understanding ourselves, it's easily accessible. Uh, we have resources that we need to reach a solution if we're willing to work to do it. Adaptive problems are ones that cannot be solved with our existing knowledge and skills. Uh, they come from a changing environment where our, our best strategies and approaches uh, won't work. And so what's required is new learning and the ability and the willingness to adapt, uh, um, to change not, not who we are, but how we approach what lies in front of us, uh, what we assume about it, how God might be at work in it. And these changes are necessary because what got us here won't take us there and we're headed into uncharted territory. In the past, we had problems, but the majority of our problems were technical. Their solutions were in our wheelhouse. Today, a lot more of our problems are adaptive. And because this is true, um, um, uh, and we're you know, just now kind of catching up to this, we're, we're trying to play catch up, and we're shrinking and struggling. So it's a, it's a challenge. And I said this relates to the minister-elder relationship because both find themselves squarely in the middle of this 
unprecedented and tremendously challenging situation, a situation where uh, they must work together to see progress. But this has proven difficult because sometimes ministers wonder if elders are willing or capable of making the kind of adaptive changes that are necessary for a ministry in the world we live in now. And elders sometimes worry that ministers have thrown caution and reason to the wind and have been overcome by our culture. Again, I, I realize those are generalizations, but, um, but you know, again, maybe you recognize some faces in those generalizations. And so if this is the situation that we find our, where we find ourselves, that the relationship between ministers and elders is vital, it's, it's so important that it work well because there is a lot at stake. The church is at stake in a changing world where we, we don't want to just survive, we want to thrive as God works through us to his glory. And there are relationships at stake where both elders and ministers look back on their experiences with one another and as they do, they want to do that fondly. They want Acts 20 kind of memories, not experiences that send them to therapy. Uh, and truth be told, um, the church that is at stake and the relationships that are at stake are inseparable. Uh, because when ministers and elders serve together well, even amid their differences and disagreements, they live out the gospel. They proclaim the gospel in the ways that they love one another and serve like Jesus and support the efforts of one another in their common calling. When they don't do that, well, they proclaim something different entirely. And so this elder-minister relationship is vital. So I wanted to try and set the stage um, that way. Um, um, and, and from that, I have some, uh, some suggestions for working well um, with elders. They are things that can either get the elder-minister relationship off to a good start or can help it grow through the tenure of your ministry together. And so number one, you know, pray for your elders, both as spiritual leaders and as people. You know, elders are human beings, so they have strengths and faults. They struggle with their own temptations and sins. They are not perfect, and they are usually busy uh, a lot of them work full-time jobs, have families, and then elder on top of that. I have two elders that live 20 miles from church through very tough traffic. All of that complicates their job. And we all know that Satan likes to attack church leaders, and there are few things more devastating to a church than when an elder falls. Uh, so pray for them. Pray that God will put a hedge of protection around them. Pray for their wisdom, for their spiritual growth, and for your own relationship with them. And of course, pray for them regarding specific situations and decisions at church. Pray for unity among the elders, that they can work well with deacons and shepherd the congregation effectively. Uh, I, I, I don't have to try to list for you all the ways that you can pray for your elders. My point is that we should, we should do that. We should pray for them both as spiritual leaders and as people. Recommendation number two is to keep your own life in order. That way, as far as it depends on you, your elders have nothing to be concerned about. Now, there will always be tensions and conflicts. People have personalities, and sometimes personality styles clash. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about integrity. Be a person they can trust to do the right thing, even when they don't know how you spend uh, every minute of your day. Be accountable. Don't give them a reason to worry about you. 
And there are a couple of things to give attention to here. The first is, you know, your own spiritual vitality. So Mark's going to talk more about that on Friday, and you, uh, you may want to be here for that. But one of the best ways to keep your life in order is to have consistent, private time with God in which you grow in that relationship. We need the encouragement and the affirmation that God has for us as the people he has called in his service. Um, he loves us and he wants us to do well. Uh, we also need to pour out that service before him with all of its highs and lows. God is our best companion in this walk, and so we need to nurture that companionship. Our next best companionship in this walk is our spouse, and so the other thing to give attention to is our marriage. Uh, that, too, helps keep our life in order. Lot, you know, we all know lots of marriages suffer in the busy schedule and demanding work of ministry. And so we must invest in our marriages to sustain them well. So have a regular date night. Steal a getaway weekend whenever you can. Make it a point to talk about things, especially things that she wants to talk about. Let, let her in, right? Do occasional marriage tune-up workshops even when there's no real problem in your relationship. It's good for stimulating conversation. Take vacations that are real vacations where you can unplug and relax and rejuvenate together, not vacations where you go take care of other parts of your family or fix up your house, right? Get out of town. My point is that we need to invest in our marriages like we invest in our relationship to God. Both will help keep our own lives in order. As ministers, we all know that we're not perfect, just like elders are not. We struggle with our own problems and challenges. And so when we do sin, confess that to God and repent and then move on. Don't let sin linger. Don't let it get a foothold in your life. Ask the Lord to protect you just like you pray that your elders will be protected. My point is be a person of integrity. Serve with a clear conscience. That way, if there are conflicts in your relationship with an elder, it won't be because of spiritual or moral failure. Um, other things are much easier to reconcile. Number three, make expectations clear. Most every minister has a job description that outlines his responsibilities, and that's good, but it is not necessarily the same as the expectations that elders may have for what it means uh, for you to do your job well. And if you have five elders, there may be five sets of expectations. There may be overlap in those, or there, there may not. Um, and something important to know about expectations is that they are seldom made known. And that's true for all of us. We go through life with expectations uh, uh, for our spouse, our kids, our boss, our co-workers, our church members, but we rarely tell them what those are. And then when they don't live up to our expectations, we get frustrated or upset or disappointed. One of the big sources of dissatisfaction or conflict is unmet expectations. And so um, it is to our advantage to be clear about them. So how do you do that? Well, sometimes it's just direct conversation, uh, one at a time over a cup of coffee, maybe in a formal or informal way. Ask them what they expect of you. I got my job description. I understand what those responsibilities mean, but I, I also know people have expectations of me, and I'd like to know what yours are. If I'm going to do my job well, what does that look like for you? 
And one way to facilitate that is, is, or another way to facilitate that is to ask for regular performance evaluations so that you can communicate directly about their perception of your performance. That can get at expectations better than a job description can. And then if you're applying for a ministry position, it's good to be uh, as clear about that a as you can to, to understand what they think the elder minister relationship will be like if you take the job. Um, and if you have pretty strong feelings about what you, you would like for that to be, then you should make those things clear too. If your ideas fit together, then that's great. If they don't match, then it's good for both parties to know that um, so you can make informed decisions. So make expectations clear. Number four, know your elder's conflict style. Uh, everybody has a typical way that they deal with conflict, and elders will too. First, some people avoid conflict at all costs. They don't like it, it makes them uncomfortable, and so when conflict arises, they want to put it off or change the subject or minimize its importance. Whatever they can do to avoid the conflict, they will. Um, it's not a helpful approach, but, but it is what some people do. Second, other people take a competitive approach. They jump right in and push their own goals and ideas. They tend not to consider the opinions or needs of others in the conflict. Their desire is to win and to get things to go their way because they sincerely believe that their way is the best. And this approach can be helpful if a group is hopelessly deadlocked, but typically it's not helpful because it's insensitive and it blocks good problem solving. Third, some people are accommodators in their desire to please people and to maintain relationships. They sacrifice their own goals and needs. You know, they, they tend to be non-assertive and quite cooperative. They, they act like a friendly helper who, who uh, keeps peace and harmony. Um, it sounds good, but the approach isn't really very helpful. Uh, while peace may be had for the moment, it may be peace that doesn't last. Um, what's more, once the decision gets put into action, the accommodator may regret not having spoken up. Um, uh, fourth, other people uh, approach conflict by compromising. They tend to negotiate toward a solution that everyone can live with. Compromise can be a convenient and comfortable way out of conflict, but because everybody has to give something up in the decision, the problem may surface again later because it never really got solved. And finally, some people favor collaborating. They, they do their best to create a solution where the goals of everyone can be accomplished and they can find mutually acceptable solutions. It is the best approach, but it's the most difficult because in order to do it well, everybody has to agree that they want to collaborate together. Um, and, uh, um, and not everybody will. Um, so... so um, so while it's the best, it's also the most difficult. My, my, my point here is not to decide about, about how to approach that. My point is that everybody deals with conflict in one of these ways or one or two of these ways. And so if you can know your own style and if you can become familiar with the styles of your elders, then you can know what to expect when tensions arise. Um, and then you can do your best to be a non-anxious presence in the midst of them. <clears throat> Number five, um, it's good to involve your elders in professional development. Um, whether that means attending lectures and workshops together or reading books together, watching um, a video series, taking inventories like a conflict style scale, 
and then talking about them. There are all kinds of professional development, church development things that you can do together that benefit both um, you and your church. And then whatever it is that you have done, take some time to talk about how that might impact your working relationship or what the church is doing, you know, whatever is uh, appropriate. I'll, uh, I'll get a little personal for a second. I have four elders and two of them will not read. I mean, they, they will, but it takes them forever. Uh, they forget to do it a lot of the time, show up to the meeting, oh, I left my book in the, you know, wherever. Um, uh, the other two will read, but they're busy and sometimes reading gets distracted. Every so often I have a book come across an, uh, an article or an idea that I would, I'd love to read through um, with them together, talk about why it got my blood pumping, what's their reaction, discuss how this might make a difference for our congregational life. Doing that together um, would help us stay informed about things and be exposed to, 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 to new ideas. It's, you know, the iron sharpens iron kind of thing. But at least for now, that's not something I get to do much. Uh, I have to pick my things carefully and sparingly do extra work uh, to make sure that their part is easier, then be patient and, uh, and temper my expectations. It's, it's not ideal. I wish it were different because I see a lot of value in doing professional development things together. Not every professional development thing, but some things chosen well. So if you have elders that will do that with you, then I'd encourage that. Number six, have a support system outside your church. It is good to have trusted friends that will talk with you about anything, and in the end, your friendship may, remains intact without effect. Uh, we all need emotional, spiritual, and physical help, but if we depend solely on our church community um, to provide that, it creates a kind of codependency. Uh, it limits our perspective. And so there are several benefits from you know, outside church friends um, one is that you get to look at the world through somebody else's eyes, somebody who's not a part of your church. And when you do this, you can see things that you would otherwise miss. You hear what other people are talking about, what's going on that you, uh, that you may not have noticed in the news, in books that have been written, ideas that are circulating. Sometimes we just need help seeing things. That's because churches are, are closed systems for the most part. Not much penetrates our walls to challenge our thinking uh, when you talk with trusted outsiders, you discuss things, you hear um, ideas that you wouldn't otherwise engage, you can ask for their advice, they will share similar experiences or observations about what you've said and done. All of that is refreshing and you only get it outside of your church with a person that you can trust. Another benefit is you can just vent, right? Everyone needs to complain, express frustration, ask questions, uh, and not have to worry if it's going to come back to bite them or how that will affect um, um, others um, in, your, in your congregation. You just need a safe place to unload. And lastly, you have friends who are just there for you, right? They love you. They have your back when your back needs having. Uh, they know the work that you do and the demands that come along with it. Plus, you know, they're there for just the stuff of your life, right? Hardships, illness, tragedies. They'll sit there um, with you just to be there. They'll say prayers that you can't muster at the time. Uh, they will fill in however they can. Uh, I'm sure there's a whole list of other benefits, but um, um, those, are, those are three. Uh, um, my point is that it will, 
help your relationship with your elders to have a support system outside of the church. Number seven, uh, this may be one of um, uh, my most important recommendations. Build, build friendships with your elders. Um, well, one of the things um, um, uh, that may help the relationship most is to spend time um, with your elders that have nothing to do with church, right? So become friends. If, if both of you um, uh, um, like to play golf, then play golf together. One of my elders um, loves to play golf. Uh, we've played uh, together a little bit over the years, but his work schedule gets in the way of that a lot. But he's going to retire soon, and, and so we've already talked about playing more golf and some golf courses we'd like to play together. So do that kind of thing. If you both like fishing, go fishing. If you both like the theater, right, whatever hobbies or interests you have in common, try to do that together. I have another elder who can build, make, or fix anything. And because we are a small church, he gets the lion's share of repairs and replacements around the building and at some camp property that our church owns. Now, my dad was never a very handy guy around the car or around the house, and so I did not learn those things from him. We were both more academically inclined. But I have spent the last almost 20 years being this elder's repair flunky. Uh, whenever he's building or fixing something, I, I do my best to be there to help. And that basically means that I hand him tools and stand there and watch, right? Uh, but he likes to talk. And so, uh, uh, you know, we talk a lot and he explains what he's doing and I learn some things in the process. But the best part of it all is that we have become good friends and that has been, been, been great for both of us. Uh, another good way to build friendships is to eat together, right? There are too many other people at church potlucks. So, you know, invite your elders over for dinner. You know, have their elders and their wives have them come. You cook, play a game after dinner, talk the whole time, ask questions about their life, share stories, learn things that you would not otherwise learn and get to know them. Building friendships will not prevent problems or conflicts at church from happening, but the bonds that you have formed and the familiarity that you have together will make it easier and more likely that you can work through those problems well. Um, so build friendships uh, with your elders. Um, eight and nine. So love one another and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I put those together because they fit well. Um, um, and you know, the, the, you think these things should be obvious to us, but sometimes the obvious slips away in the midst of business, right? So, of course, we should do our best to live the admonitions of Scripture in all of our relationships, um, and there are many more admonitions than these. But, you know, as I think about elders and ministers, perhaps these are the most relevant. So, love one another, sometimes because this relationship is kind of like an employee-boss relationship, the workplace dimension of things can overshadow the fact that we are brothers in Christ, parts of the same body, and called to love one another. Uh, ministers, their wives and kids, elders and their wives and kids, don't just give to the body because they have roles to play. They are integral parts of the body and need to receive from that body um, just as much as they give. And they need to receive it in love. Uh, anytime the minister-elder relationship gets reduced to a business transaction, then it has lost the presence of Jesus. 
Now, we all know from marriage classes that love has an emotional component, but emotions cannot be allowed to drive the relationships because they're fickle, they're unreliable, they're unstable. And so um, love is primarily a decision we make to treat people as God has treated us. And both elders and ministers need this to be a two-way street. This means even when things uh, may not be going well and our emotions want to take us in unhealthy directions, we must decide to love and give respect and treat the other well, even in our disagreements. And we all know that when things are fueled, it's not easy. And that leads um, naturally to mutual submission. In Ephesians 5, when Paul admonishes the believers to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, he's talking about husbands and wives. But in that same passage, he explains that this is all a profound mystery because I'm talking about Christ and the church as well. So combine this with the example of Christ's submission in Ephesians 2, and it's hard to get past the fact that mutual submission applies to everybody in the body, ministers and elders alike. In fact, some might argue that it is um, our example to set for all of the other believers in the flock. Um, uh, I know a guy who was the preaching minister for a church. He was in a meeting with all of his elders and things got rather testy. I'm not privy to the details, so I don't know why, but there was disagreement in the room and emotions were running hot. And then the minister did something extraordinary. He left the room, returned with a large bowl of warm water and a towel and began washing feet. Now, it shouldn't be extraordinary because Jesus told us that he had set an example for us to follow. But I say it's extraordinary, especially when tensions are high, because I think not many of us would lovingly humble ourselves and do that. Um, back in the beginning of our class, we had extreme characterizations wherein neither ministers nor elders believed they could be discipled or taught from the other. Um, um, because maybe being um, in control was more important. Uh, maybe that would require submission or, or love to learn and receive from the other. Uh, but how much better if that were not indeed the case? The truth is ministers have a lot that they can teach elders and elders have a lot that they can teach ministers. In the environment in which they work and serve together, if that's characterized by love and mutual submission, there is a great chance for this to happen both to the benefit of the church and themselves and I think Christ would say it's our responsibility to do our best to make that happen. And then finally, recommendation number 10 is to work cooperatively. This doesn't surprise me, but I did notice that when I asked my friends and colleagues to talk about their relationships uh, with elders, a large number of them talked about the huge difference between being treated as an equal rather than a subordinate, as someone who was a part of the team rather than just hired for the job. And the truth be told, uh, of all the things that I have said so far, you know, they can apply equally to elders and ministers. 
the class asked me to speak to ministers. You know, if you're an elder and you want your relationship with your minister to go well, then you, you know you should do all of these things too, right? Pray for him, keep your own life in order, make expectations clear, have outside support, build friendships, love and submit. But perhaps this final recommendation is more for elders in the room because you are the ones who control whether this happens or not. I know for myself, and it was clear from ministers I spoke with, that they were much happier, much more productive, even more spiritually grounded when the elders included them in their activities. And what I mean by that is that ministers come to elders' meetings and they participate freely in discussions and are consulted and asked to offer opinions and and guidance. Everyone prays and talks together about shepherding needs. Now, everyone knows that ministers are not elders, and there will come times when elders need to talk among themselves. In our congregation, that happens, I don't know, once a year, maybe. And, uh, and that's fine, you know, that, that, that's necessary. But what including ministers does is help build a team that is much more unified, much more effective as, uh, as a group working toward goals and a mission together. It creates ownership and builds commitment. I'm not saying that these things are impossible with other models, but they're much more difficult, and we all know what it feels like to be on the outside looking in. In most cases, elders hire ministers because they have important education and training. They know their Bibles. They understand churches and how they function. They have theological insights that come to bear on life and culture and history. In short, they are hired because of their expertise. Uh, And it seems only wise to make the most of that expertise by including them in what you do as elders and shepherds. Plus, we all know how much better a person does when they feel fulfilled and happy, feel like they are growing, making the most of their experience, are are able to make important contributions and can help when things uh, are tough. And uh, I I would think, I would hope that um, a church wants and that elders want their ministers to 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 thrive that way because it's so much better for the church. And all of this is so much more likely when when ministers are made a part of a team of elders and they work together in a common task and a common calling and a common vision. Um, Otherwise, you do just kind of feel like you were hired for the job. And there's a huge difference between those two, and I, I hope that makes sense. So as we come to a close, we've talked about a a couple of things that we know about the elder-minister relationship, about this tension that can um, exist, um, and and I've offered some recommendations for um, sustaining a a good relationship over the long haul. Mine has gone well for almost 20 years now, and so um, I hope that brings a little credibility to the table. feels like 